Chapter 20 of The Great Sinners of the Bible This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Osadumebi The Great Sinners of the Bible by Lewis Albert Banks Chapter 20 The Shibboleth of Fate and the Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when those Ephraimites which were escaped said, Let me go over, that the men of Gilead said unto him, Art thou an Ephraimite? If he said nay, then said they unto him, Say now, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. For he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. Judges chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 The general who devised that scheme of finding out the truth about the stragglers who were captured was, whatever else may be said about him, a very shrewd man. It seemed to have been an almost infallible test. The whole tribe or nation had lost the power to pronounce the sound of what we call the letter H. Little by little, it had passed out of their speech, and though in general they spoke the same language as their neighbours, they spoke a language impoverished for the lack of this single sound, and this bright soldier, in command of the Gileadites, took advantage of this deformity of speech to prevent the escape of those who had already escaped from the battlefield. It was a test which it was impossible for them to evade. Every man born and reared among the Ephraimites had been brought up with this defect of speech, and now it betrayed him into the hands of his enemies. This word, shibboleth, has gone into the language of the world. It has been given, for the most part, in our time a rather unpopular and contemptible meaning as indicating the unreasonable demand of some faction who refused to believe in the truth or righteousness of any except those who pronounced their particular shibboleth of words as representing faith in matters of religion. There is, however, it seems to me, a very great and important message which is very naturally suggested by this interesting little story that a man must pass in the end for what he is, that a man's character, the real bedrock principles upon which his life is built, his inner self, must finally dictate his destiny. The shibboleth of fate is that a man must stand or fall by himself, his own personality. As an Ephraimite could not suddenly, at will, change the language his mother taught him, could not, if he would, at command learn the new sounds which his tongue had never known how to speak. So in the great testing emergencies of life, the man you are, the woman you are, will hold your fate in its own hand. The inner self will speak out and decide where you belong. I have been reading recently a very interesting paper by Reverend John Hopkins Dennison, which purports to give a highly scientific theory of the evolution by which the birds came to fly in the air. 
According to this theory, in the early days of the history of the earth, and long before man came, a queer creature poked its head out of the water at the edge of the ocean. He had an ugly snout, like a fish, only that at the end, it was prolonged into a sort of horny bill with sharp little teeth set in it. His body was long and slimy and wriggly, like a fat eel, but he had two crooked ungainly legs with hooked claws, and at his shoulders were great flopping awkward things that looked half like wings and half like fins. It would have been a puzzle to tell whether he was a fish or a bird. It is rather doubtful if he knew himself. He had been lying quietly enough down on the mud bottom, breathing in the cold water through his gills, when suddenly, as he had looked up with his glassy eyes toward the sunlight that was streaming in through the water, there had come over him a restless, unhappy feeling, a desire to get out of the mud and swim upward toward the light. And when his head was out of the water, he found that he could draw the fresh, warm air in a new way into what was certainly the beginning of a pair of lungs. And as he sunned himself in the warmth and light, there came over him a strong feeling that he belonged in this higher world and not down in the mud at the bottom of the sea. No bird wing had yet smitten the air, and there did not seem to be much chance for a bird in this ugly, awkward, slimy creature who was beginning to feel that he was meant to be a bird. He stood on the shore and flapped his awkward stumps of wings. The thrill of the bright air was in his lungs. The glow of a new life was pulsing in his veins. His blood was no longer the cold, lifeless fluid that flows through the gills of the fish. It was warm. It was the hot red blood that carries life from the air in the lungs to every tingling bit of the body. He seemed to feel it ready to burst forth and clothe his slimy skin with a growth of feathery plumage. It was urging him on and up into the blue sky above. He must fly. Once more, he flapped the ungainly wings. One spring with the cricket legs and he was up in the air above the sea, above the earth. How glorious it was to behold the green hills and valleys below, the radiant sun and the pure atmosphere everywhere. And just then, he flew over a quiet pool. And as he passed, he saw the reflection of his form in the still water. There he was, ugly, awkward, flapping his great stumpy wings and wriggling along his slimy body with his crooked legs and huge claws sticking out in all directions. He was suddenly discouraged. What is he? Ugly, awkward creature that he is doing up there in the air and sunlight. His place is down in the mud. A few more spasmodic, tired flaps and down he goes into the water with a great splash and down into the ooze and slime of the ocean's bed. But he could not stay in the water. Again, he heard the call of the sunshine. Once more, he crept forth into the air 
and again the premonition of the bird life came back to him. He felt his lungs expand. He felt the hot blood flow. He felt again the passion for the sky. It was awkward work at first and pitiful to see the great ungainly thing trying to be a bird and fly. But he stayed in the air and slowly the change came. Long after, if any man had stood upon the earth, he would have seen a bird with great sweeping wings and glistening plumage soar upward from the low shore toward the sky. There is no awkwardness now, nothing ungainly in the movement. Stroke by stroke, those great wings carry the glorious eagle resistlessly upward. He is at home now in the vast blue realm of the sky. Bathed in the sunshine, buoyed on the air, confidently soaring above the highest mountain peaks. Now, I have retold to you this scientific supposition because it is, I think, a very suggestive illustration of the transformation which must come to a man or a woman who has been given over to a worldly life. Living without reference to God and Christ and immortality, before there may be hope of entering into the joy and glory of a spiritual life in this or any world. This creature, born to be a bird, could no more help having hot blood in the air than he could keep himself from having cold blood in the water. By remaining in the air, the gills of the fish little by little disappeared, and he became a bird. If he had remained in the water, all the fishy characteristics would have developed. His possible wings would have become fins. The bird life would have lost its power to charm him, and he would have settled down into the mud forever. So with the higher possibilities of man. You yourself must decide the shibboleth of fate. It is for you to say whether you will live the worldly life of the flesh, or the high and holy life of the spirit. There are many degrees of present morality, but the great choice must be made, and that will settle destiny. It is a far cry from Kipling's Filipino half-devil and half-child to Browning's tribute to his wife, whom he terms half-angel and half-bird. But wherever you may be in the scale of moral quality, the final decision is in your hands, and you must utter that shibboleth of fate which shall declare whether you are to sink down into the life of the appetites and passions and lusts, a mere worldly creature, or climb upward into the light and give yourself up to the sunlit life of the spirit. There is no more horrible delusion of the devil than that discouraging and disheartening thing which he whispers to us that the upper life, the life of purity and love is impossible for us, that we have not in us the capacity to breathe that holy atmosphere and have no powers of flight to buoy ourselves in the face of the sun of righteousness, that the lower ooze and slime of base tempers and evil passions is the atmosphere and the only atmosphere suited for such as we are. It is a devil's slander. We were born, 
the poorest of us, the weakest of us, the most awkward and ungainly of us in a moral way. To be the sons of God and that sunlight of beauty and truth that has sought us out even in the muddy atmosphere where we have lain is not meant to mock us, but to beckon us upward and onward to the glorious life which is possible for us. And if we will give ourselves a chance to breathe in God's spirit every day, to have fellowship with the Christian graces, the warm blood of the heavenly love life will course through our veins and our souls will rejoice to fly in the face of the sky. The thing I want to impress on you most of all is that the shibboleth of fate, your fate, is not in some other hands, not even the hand of God, but in your own. And we should never forget, in dealing with the most disheartened bit of humanity, that we are dealing with a kingly nature. He may be an uncrowned king, he may even be a dethroned king, but every individual is a monarch, nevertheless over his own fate. Robert Louis Stevenson, the novelist, was once walking with a friend when a tramp came up and begged alms. Stevenson said he would give him something if he might first give him a lecture, and thereupon he launched into a flow of oratory, brilliant, learned, humorous and pathetic, making of the beggar before him a type of human failure, and pointing the way to rise above it. A lay sermon, in fact, broad in its charity, profound in its learning, rich in its intuition and wide philosophy. He finished rather abruptly and gave some money to the beggar, who touched his ragged cap and said, Thank you, sir, as much for what you've said as for what you've given me. I'm not very often taken to be still a man. It is the manhood in you, that spark of divine inheritance which clings to you, to which I make my appeal. I know there is in you that which answers to the appeal to turn from your sin to a noble and spiritual life. Dr. Bonner tells us that, in the days when the mosque of Omar was first built over that spot of Mount Moriah, where the worshipper could touch a piece of the unhewn original rock of the hill, it was customary to bring loads of incense and aromatic shrubs into the shrine, which was called Chakra. As a consequence, if anyone had been worshipping there, he carried away with him so much of the fragrance of the place that when people passed him in the marketplace of Jerusalem or in the streets, they used to say to each other, He has been in the Chakra today. It is our glorious possibility to so live that we may come forth daily with our garments of conversation and conduct, smelling of the holy communion and fellowship we have had with God. How strange and unnatural it is that we should have in us this dream of the best things, this longing for the holiest life, and yet go for years and years making no response to it. Mr. Moody tells of a poor mother who had an only child who was idiotic, and on the day when it was fourteen years of age, a neighbour came in and found the mother weeping in the bitterness of her soul. She wanted to know what was the matter. The mother said, 
For fourteen years I have cared for that child day and night. I have given up society and spent my time with her. And today, she does not know me from you. If she would recognize me once, it would pay me for all I have ever done for her. How many there are for whom Jesus died, and whom he has watched over and cared for and blessed, and to whom he has manifested infinite love and tenderness, who yet have never once recognized him, have never looked up into his face and said, Thank you, dear Lord Jesus. End of chapter 20